0: Every day that goes by, there are more and more kids that come to this world and that feel enveloped by a sense of darkness. And I feel that my calling is to break through this cloud, break through the darkness with the light of their inner connection with God.
1: This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking In Good Faith today with Rabbi Benny Zippel. He's the executive director of Chabad Lubavitch, which is the Utah branch of the world's largest Jewish outreach organization. Rabbi Zippel, thank you so much for making time.
0: Pleasure. It's great to be here. I noticed you were born in Milan. Was Italian your first language of your many? Absolutely. I was born in Milan in 1966 and graduated high school in Milan in 1984 before coming over to this country for college and rabbinical school. So Italian still is my first language, yes. You were studying modern languages
1: in Milan. At what point did you head for rabbinical studies or decide that was your course?
0: When I came to college in the United States, At the Rabbinical College of America in 1984, um, I got more and more into religious studies, and I decided this is probably my calling, and this is what I wanted to pursue. So I continued with my studies in Rabbinical College, and um, I have a bachelor's in religious studies from the Rabbinical College of America in Morristown, New Jersey, and then I pursued my studies with the Rabbinical Ordination from the central Chabad Lubavitch Yeshiva in Brooklyn, New York. And I decided this is the course that I want to take. As you were growing up as a child, I don't know if there were rabbis in
1: the family or what your very first religious experience memories are.
0: When I was growing up, it's not so much uh, rabbis in the family, but I would say probably I saw more and more and more the impact that the Rebbe spelled capital R-E-B-B-E, the Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem M. Schneerson, who was the leader of the Lubavitch Worldwide Movement, was having on my family, on my community in Milan, Italy, and beyond that too, so on the entire world. And I felt very much inspired that this is the kind of pursuit that I was interested in, that I wanted to carry on the Rebbe's teachings and share them with as many people that I can come in contact with and give it my personal share in transforming this world into a godly abode. As a young person, you obviously were raised in a religious
1: atmosphere, but at some point did you have a moment that many have where you think, well, here's what I've been taught, how do I decide if this is actually what I believe?
0: Well, actually, it's interesting because my father, of blessed memory, was actually not a rabbi or not a spiritual leader. He was a businessman in Italy. He was a very honest and upright, very, very amazing person. Uh, But his occupation was not in rabbinics, not in education. He and his family um, owned a business. But it was very clear seeing my father, the way he lived his life, that his material pursuits, his business endeavor, was nothing more than just earning a livelihood, which is how it should be according to Judaism. But his own main interest, his main goal, his main passion was really to rejuvenating Judaism in Italy. He and his brothers, of blessed memory, established a synagogue in Milan, In the early 50s, so just a few short years after the liberation of the concentration camps, they dedicated the synagogue that I was raised in in Milan, named after my own grandfather, so their father. And that was really a very powerful lesson to me about what I wanted to pursue in life.
1: Here you are celebrating just recently 25 years of the organization here in Salt Lake City. And I wonder if you could tell me about the impetus or the first idea, the germ that turned
0: into what is here today. Absolutely. So the Rebbe, the leader of the chabad Lubavitch movement, suffered a stroke on March 2nd of 1992 ultimately leading to his passing in June of 1994. So we just celebrated his 24th anniversary. The night before the Rebbe suffered his stroke, so on Sunday, March the 1st, 1992, the Rebbe gave me a blessing that I should move to Utah. I had never been to Utah. I didn't know where Utah was. I don't know if Utah was. Again, I'm born and raised in Italy with a limited exposure to U.S. geography. My wife was born and raised in Toronto, Canada, also, I guess, with some limited exposure to U.S. geography. And we had been approached by Chabad Lubavitch World Headquarters in Brooklyn saying, we would like to send you out to an outpost in a place called Utah. And we said, "Uh, sure, where is this place? Like, what continent is it in? We had never heard of it. I had never heard of a place called Utah. And they told me where it is, and we asked the Rebbe for a blessing. This is what the Rebbe wanted us to do. And sure enough, it was... And so we came here, and it's been an incredible journey. It's been a remarkable journey from the very, very beginning. We actually moved here in July of 1992. And one of the first people that I met during my first six months here was President Gordon B. Hinckley, who invited me at a meeting with him. And I'll never forget that meeting. We exchange greetings. Um, on behalf of Rabbi Schneerson, of course, whom he had heard about. And he said to me some very powerful words at that meeting in December of 92. He said, Rabbi Benny, I want you to know that I believe very strongly in what you were sent here to Utah to achieve. And I want you to consider me personally, a personal friend of yours, and somebody who will be there whenever you need to make sure that your mission succeeds. And I can honestly say that from that very day, when he shared those words with me, till the day he passed away, we've maintained an ongoing, beautiful relationship. I wonder if I
1: can ask you about two aspects of of your work. Uh, I saw a leader of the movement from an old black and white video saying that we needed people to be lamplighters, like a lamppost, and that if someone stood up with that light, that others who were seeking it would begin to gather around. And that seems to be the very experience you've had here. Correctly,
0: That video that you're referring to is actually not from a leader in the movement. That is from the leader, of Rabbi Schneerson, the oh. Rebbe, who is, of course, my mentor and the inspiration in my life. And that is a very consistent message that the Rebbe has shared with all of us, his disciples, using this metaphor of placing a lantern in a dark environment that all those who seek light find their way close to it. And that has been our mission statement from the very first day that we came here. On my logo, it says, Chabad Lubavitch of Utah, rising to the heights of Judaism. And that is really what this is all about, placing a lantern that represents God's light and inviting and encouraging all those who seek light to come close. Another aspect, and this was formed
1: very soon, it seems, after you moved here, was that you got involved in outreach with youth in residential facilities. And several people who I have interviewed, who've either been chaplains or in other ways worked with youth in these situations, have gone out of their way to say, I really admire what Rabbi Benny Zimple does. And I wonder if you would explain what your sense of mission is for those youth.
0: So we moved in July of 92, The internet was not as popular as it is today, 26 years ago. And my first December here, the holiday of Hanukkah was approaching. And one day, just out of the blue, I received a call from a man who I didn't know, who introduced himself as a Jewish man living in Orange County, California. And he said to me that he had a son, who at the time was 15 years old, who was in school in Provo, Utah. And the holiday of Hanukkah is approaching, Would I be so kind and visit the boy in school? Now, I knew he was very vague about it. He didn't really want to go into any details. The only school that I knew of in Provo, Utah, was BYU. And I said, hmm, 15-year-old Jewish kid at school in Provo, Utah, This kid's got to be a genius, and he is at the scholarship of some sort at BYU. I mean, I don't know why would a Jewish kid from Orange County, outside of the greater L.A. area that has all the Jewish infrastructure, why would he be in school in Provo, Utah? And sure enough, he gave me the address, and I went to visit this young man who was in school at a place called Discovery Academy in Provo, Utah, which was a residential treatment center or slash therapeutic boarding school. And I remember reaching out to this boy and discovering what an incredible young man he was and how much trouble and anguish and heartache he had gone through with his drug addiction and mental health-related issues. And I was so touched and impacted by this one visit with this young man. At the end of the visit, I said to him, his name was Eric, I remember, and I said to him, Eric, are you the only Jewish young man in this school? And he says, Rabbi, come with me. You need to, I need to show you something. And it took me around to school, and he started pointing out to other kids that were Jewish. And I'm like, what is going on with you? What's happening? And I started little by little sort of digging into it and found out something that I was totally unaware of, that I was not prepared for. Nobody had ever warned me about that or prepared me about that. Utah is probably the world capital of what we call wilderness therapy programs and residential treatment centers. On a given year, there are probably, I would say, it's hard to pin a number, but I would say now probably three to 500 Jewish kids from all over the world, from Israel, from Europe. A few years ago, we had a young Jewish girl, a teenager from Hong Kong. We have Jewish kids from all over the world that come here to Utah to seek therapy. And so I said, again, going back to the Rebbe's teachings, we can never, God forbid, ignore or overlook a seeking young man or young woman, a child that is craving for guidance and direction in life. So right there, that December of 1992, I decided we have to do something about it. And so I established right there and then an endeavor within Chabad of Utah. that is called Chabad of Utah, Project HEART. Now, at the beginning, Project HEART, sort of the inspiration, was based on the acronym Hebrew education for at-risk teens. Nowadays, that acronym has kind of gone away, and it's just called Project HEART because it's really about having a heart for these kids, these young men and women that can range anywhere from the youngest I've seen is about 10 years old usually up to 18 and we now have a separate endeavor within the project itself for adults because we have young men and women over the age of 18 that come to Utah for therapy for drug addiction for mental health related issues some of them are suicidal some of them have experienced um, sexual trauma within the school system within the family system some of them suffer from eating disorders all kinds of mental health related issues And that has now become probably the key endeavor of my work here in Utah. I spend most of my time on the road, on I-15, visiting residential treatment centers and kids in various programs, dealing with their parents, dealing with their therapists, dealing with their relatives and work-related issues, I mean, it just, it just gets more and more and more and more intense, and that's what really Project Heart is all about.
1: What is it that being there as a rabbi that you can do, is it helping them make a connection with God or with, with their tradition?
0: I'll tell you something that I feel very, very strongly about. On the one hand, as a society, we progress incredibly. Without going back hundreds of years ago, if I think myself, I mean, my own kids say to me sometimes, hey, Dad, is it true that when you were our age, you used to listen to music on cassette tapes? And I'm not that old. But, yeah, I mean, if we think about technology, if we think about the advance of medicine, if we think advance of, of technology, I mean, every literally in every aspect out there, there's incredible advance. With that said, alongside or sort of parallel to our incredible advancement in every facet of our lives there is something else happening along with it we become so incredibly overwhelmed about our achievements and our discoveries and our charisma and our intelligence and our sophistication that what seems to grow alongside with that is our ego and having a background in languages ego of course is a latin word which is the, the self-awareness, by in my limited exposure to what's happening around this world, I've come to realize that the word ego is really an acronym for three English words that are easing God out. So the more we become sophisticated and advanced and intelligent and achieved and so on and so forth, the more God is sort of pushed out of the equation. And the moment God is out of the equation, there is a vacuum. And then we have young men and women that are brought into this world by great, great parents, wonderful people. But as young people grow up, they come to a point in their lives where they are lacking two key elements. And that's what I like to refer to as inherent meaning and purpose. They have no meaning and purpose. They don't know why they're here. So reality, as a result of that, gets very difficult to deal with. And so how do you dull your senses when reality around you is very unpleasant, very hurtful in many cases? How do you dull your senses? Well, through drinks, through drugs, through pornography, through gambling, through all kinds of issues that are really sort of used by these young kids to help them overcome their feeling of inadequacy within society. And so my experience has shown that basically all I do, I want to make it very clear, and I never want to, God forbid, falsely misrepresent myself. I am not a mental health professional. I don't hold the degree. I am not a licensed clinical social worker or a licensed marriage and family therapist or a Ph.D. in psychology or a psychiatrist, any of that. I do not have that. I'm a rabbi who reaches out to these kids... And one by one by one, try to inspire them that there is a God who created them and has blessed each and every one of them with inherent meaning and purpose. And their job in life is to discover this inherent meaning and purpose that is really within them from when they were conceived.
1: Inherent meaning and purpose. And you took a purpose, decided to follow a track. If I could follow your life for a moment here. How has this adventure been what you expected
0: and how has it been not at all what you expected? It's very hard to say how it has been from what I've expected because I didn't know what to expect, (laughs) to tell you the truth. (laughs) You know, I really do not know what to... I, I, I always like to use the line. They say there are three types of people out there. There are those who make things happen. There are those who watch things happen and there are those who wonder what happened. So back to the, you know, has it been what I expected? I didn't know what to expect, and I still don't know what to expect. All I know is, going back to the metaphor that you mentioned before with the lantern, that there's a lot of kids. Every day that goes by, there are more and more and more kids that come to this world and that feel enveloped by a sense of darkness, and I feel that my calling in life is to break through this cloud of darkness, of despair, that leads so many to suicide, to acts of violence and abuse, and so on and so forth, and break through the darkness with the light of their inner connection with God.
1: What are the times in your life, or the practices, <clears throat> or the moments, private or or public, where you feel connected to God?
0: Paraphrasing the prophets in our holy writings there's a verse in the book of proverbs that says know him in all your ways and i want to accentuate this for a moment because judaism different than maybe other religions judaism very strongly believes that the time for an individual to achieve his or her connectedness with god is not at a time of prayer or a time of the study of the torah or the time of when they're under deathbed, God forbid, or when they have been incarcerated, or the time when all else fails. The time for an individual to reach, to achieve his or her connection with God is every moment of their lives. So one of the things that I achieve, that that I wouldn't say I achieve, but I strive for literally every day of my life, is to do everything that I do under the banner, so to speak, of... Having that turn into a connection with God. So that's one of the things I teach the kids, for instance. I go to these treatment centers every single week and I have a bag in my car that the kids already look out for the moment I walk in, filled with goodies, with snacks, potato chips, candy, whatever, chocolate, whatever it is. And I bring it to the kids and I tell the kids, you know, we're not just going to have snacks, we're going to transform a simple, physical, materialistic act of eating a snack. Into a godly experience how do we do that so i teach them first we look at a snack and we make sure that it's kosher kosher means it's approved for the jewish diet and then we say a blessing and the blessing only contains a few words and i teach them the hebrew words of the blessing which in english it translates into blessed are you lord our god king of the universe that everything came into being by his word and in Hebrew? In Hebrew. Baruch Hashem shehakol niya bidvaro. And I tell the kids, why do we do that? God doesn't need our blessing. We think God is going to get bent out of shape if we don't bless God when we're having a snack. God, God is omnipotent. God is, doesn't need... We need the blessing as an empowerment, as a reminder to transform the act of having a snack during the day into a godly encounter. Our social encounters should manifest themselves in a godly fashion. The way we go to sleep at night, saying a prayer before we go to sleep. And I tell the kids how to say the prayer before we go to sleep. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Here, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. We go to sleep. We should, we, should, we should go to sleep in a godly fashion. We should wake up in the morning in a godly fashion. We should get dressed in the morning and go to work or go to school in a godly fashion. And if we train ourselves to do that, we really see how little by little our lives become godly lives. And when I want to say godly lives, I want to I want to stress for a moment that it's something very powerful about Judaism. In many religions out there, there's a basic, whether it is announced or non-announced, but there's a basic tenet in the religion that you either become a member of that religion, whatever that religion may be, and if not you're essentially doomed. You're toasted. There's there's no hope for you. Judaism strongly does not believe in that. Judaism believes very strongly that there is a universal God that created a universal path for all mankind to achieve godliness, each one in their own way. Well, how do we do it? Well, it depends who you are. If you're Jewish, we believe that the, the, the path that binds, strengthens the connection between a Jew and God is by having the Jew live their lives according to the teachings of the Torah. What if somebody is not Jewish? Do we believe that they are doomed or they are second-class citizens? Absolutely not. There is what is called the laws of Noah, the universal set of laws that God gave to Noah when he exited the ark after the universal flood that is for all mankind. There's actually a website that I encourage you listeners to go to, and that website is www.asknoah.org. So A S K N O A H dot O R G. That really is a website to educate mankind, everybody, to find his or her way to godliness, and that in turn brings about inherent meaning and purpose in people's lives. With the tradition of
1: Judaism, or within the tradition of Judaism, there are different subsets, different ways of observance. And I'm wondering, within Hasidic observance, does the particular type of dress, various behavioral uh, ways of living your life, what does that bring to your mind or to your heart? What
0: does that tradition do for you? So I want to address these two questions you asked me with two different answers. First of all, the groups or the fragmentation within Judaism is, funf- is something that I find incredibly offensive and actually meaningless. When they talk about Reformed Jews and Conservative Jews and Orthodox Jews and Ultra-Orthodox Jews and Reconstructionist Jews and whatever Jews, the Rebbe, Rabbi Schneerson, my mentor, um, paid zero attention to those words that mean absolutely nothing. The Rebbe actually taught us that we should learn from someone as evil as Adolf Hitler, may his name be blotted away, we should learn from him how to love a fellow person. Because in the late 30s in Europe, whether you were a Reformed Jew, a conservative Jew, an Orthodox Jew, a Hasidic Jew, an ultra-Orthodox Jew, a Reconstructionist Jew, it didn't matter. You ended up you ended up the same the same gas chamber, God forbid. And so we can use that kind of negative passion and transform that into a positive passion to love every single one, no matter who they associate with. That's in reply to your first question. In reply to your second question about the clothing and so on and so forth, I'd like to use a metaphor that I actually heard given in the name of the Rebbe. There was a person who came to see the Rebbe was sharing with the Rebbe, with Rabbi Schneerson, his feeling of discontent, of lack of fulfillment in his life. And the Rebbe used an interesting metaphor that I think is so powerful that I use with the kids all the time. And the Rebbe said to him, if I were to hand you a plain white piece of paper, an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper, with a pencil, and I were to give you the challenge of using the pencil and with your own free hand draw a perfect circle. A perfect circle is a geometrical shape where the center is equidistant from any point in the circumference. Can one do that? The answer is no. Not because we are artistically challenged, because one cannot do that. And then the Rebbe went on to explain, and he said to this person, what do you do if you need to draw a perfect circle? Can one draw a perfect circle? And the answer is yes. There's a tool that is called a compass that one uses to draw a perfect circle. Well, how does a compass work? A compass is very interesting, if you think about it. A compass is essentially a writing instrument, like a pencil, that has attached to it another leg that has a needle at the end of it. And the first thing we need to do when using a compass in an attempt to draw a perfect circle, we use the needle to create a center, a center in the paper. Once we create a center, we have to remain committed to not budge from that center. We have to hold it steady. Once we have created a center and we have a steady hold on it, at that point, we just gently lower the other leg of the compass, which is the pencil, and we draw as many perfect circles as we want. One, two, five, ten, hundred, five hundred. And guess what? They're all going to be perfect circles. Why? Because we have created a center. And so when you talk about, for instance, attire in Judaism, if you look at my attire, on my head is a head covering called a yarmulke. Yarmulke is a, a word that generates in Aramaic, an ancient uh, language used by the Israelites, which is a composite of two Aramaic words that are Yare Malka, which means fear of the king, awe of the king. Why do we wear a yarmulke or a Kippah in Hebrew, which means dome? Why do we wear it, wear it over our heads? to remind us once again that as sophisticated as we may have become and as intelligent and as charismatic and as capable and as many letters with dots that we have past our names with all our degree and our achievements ultimately we have to remind ourselves about our center which is our relationship with God. We have these fringes that I'm showing you here that are called tzitzit spelled T-Z-I-T-Z-I-T which are fringes that hang from a an undergarment that has four corners with these fringes and as the Bible says in the book of Numbers Ureitem Oto in Hebrew and you shall see it you shall look at it Uzechartem et kol mitzvot ad-Hashem. and you will be reminded of all the godly commandments that God has placed upon you once again it's a reminder to remain connected to that center so All the attires in Judaism, all the holiday celebrations in Judaism, basically every commandment that we have in Judaism is really an endeavor to remind the individual to remain steady, steadily connected to his or her center, which in turn empowers them to turn their lives and the lives of those around them into perfect circle. I wonder if I could ask a few final questions here.
1: One is personal curiosity. Because you speak, I think, about seven languages, when you pray, when you think, when you worship, is there a native language for you for worship?
0: Absolutely. It used to be, uh, well, the the worship is in Hebrew. We follow the prayers from what is called in Hebrew the sidur, spelled S-I-D-D-U-R, which means prayer book. So I follow the prayers in Hebrew, once upon a time, I have to say, I used to translate them in my own mind into Italian, which was my first language. Now I find myself at a point in my life, interestingly enough, where I've lived more years outside of Italy than I've lived in Italy. And so I find myself now translating them and meditating and contemplating about the meaning of my own personal prayers into English. When I went to
1: Yad Vashem in Jerusalem, one emphasis in that Holocaust museum, the memory and the name, was that there were a lot of video accounts of Holocaust survivors, and so we actually heard their stories, first-hand witnesses, first-person stories. Now, we're losing that generation. What is the importance, do you think, of preserving those memories, or is that time passing?
0: On a scale of a one to ten, I would say the importance of preserving those memories is a hundred. In our own community, actually, here in Utah, we have a Holocaust survivor um, that I had a pleasure to connect with probably about 20 years ago, and I maintain a connection with him. He is going to be um, 95 years old, or as I tell him, 95 years young, this coming December. He's a gem of an individual, and I think that it is imperative to teach our youth primarily about the Holocaust. But one of the things that I like to emphasize when it comes to the Holocaust, I don't believe in emphasizing the negative aspect of the Holocaust. I think it's important to teach our youth the positive aspect of the Holocaust. And when I say the positive aspect of the Holocaust is, just to share with you in a moment for for your listeners, is if you take an individual like Hitler... Hitler believed in his radical form of arrogance that he was in charge, in a certain way, of morality in this world. So I'm willing to bet you, if you were going to ask Hitler if he believes that it is moral or immoral to take away the life of a fellow person, I'm willing to bet you 1 to 100 he would say that it is immoral. Well, if it is immoral, then how do you justify what you did? And his answer would be very simple. It is immoral to take away the life of a fellow person so long that he or she is white-skinned, mainstream Catholic, blonde hair, blue eyes, full-bodied, productive member of society, straight, heterosexual. It's immoral. What happens when that person or those persons that we're talking about is either black or Jewish or homosexual or handicapped? or or something else, or can be a productive member of society. At that point, in his warped mentality, he believed, not only is it moral, it's praiseworthy of me to cleanse this world of these people who, as he labeled, are unmentioned. Unmentioned means subhumans. Somebody, in his belief, who is homosexual, or who is black-skinned, or who practices a different religion, is a subhuman. I think it is imperative, imperative, nothing more important than that, for our youth today to learn from the Holocaust that there is one with a capital O, one entity who is the only giver and taker of life, and that is the Almighty God. And if we interact with a person who doesn't think like I do, doesn't share a skin color, doesn't share my religion, doesn't share my sexual belief or preference, doesn't share whatever it is, I have no business, God forbid, even remotely thinking for a moment, that I can look down at them, or that I can, God forbid, harm them, take away their lives, if God gave them life, as I tell my kids in therapy, if God gave you life, with God being under no obligation, just because your parents conceived you, under no obligation, to have brought you into this world, there's inherent meaning and purpose for you to be here. And that's what we have to realize from the Holocaust, that every single creature in this world has his or her own inherent meaning and purpose. Rabbi Benny Zippel
1: from Chabad Lubavitch of Salt Lake City, Utah, thank you so much for speaking with me
0: today in good faith. My pleasure, Steve. It's been a pleasure conversing with you, and I want to send my very very best regards to all your listeners.
1: Thanks for tuning in to In Good Faith. In the second half of the show, we'll hear a panel of listeners talk about the ideas presented by our guest, Rabbi Benny Zippel, back in a moment with more of In Good Faith. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person accounts and stories of faith and belief. Have you noticed technology and human advancement easing God out of your life? How do you fill that vacuum, that place in our souls that yearns for connection with something higher? Is there something in your spiritual life that is your immovable center? We invited a group of people to listen with our guest and then respond. Emily Reynolds is a wife, mother, grandmother, gardener, poet, and in her spare time, the assistant director of the Wheatley Institution at BYU. Val Hawks is the father of four, grandfather of 13, who, besides being with his wife, loves spending Saturdays working in his garden and yard. Desiree Weiser is a wife, mother of six, grandmother, and teaches German to first graders. She loves to talk, travel, and learn languages. Alyssa Taylor-Solway is a senior at BYU studying sociology. She plays trumpet in the BYU marching band.
2: Rabbi Benny talked about these incredible advancements that we've been having with technology and medicine, and it really is exciting. I mean, I'm fairly young, and even so, just in my 23 years, it's been amazing to see the, the change. But he talked about how parallel to that is this growing ego He said that as an acronym for Easing God Out, and I thought that was really interesting. And he also said something about how with these incredible achievements, it's kind of parallel with being overwhelmed. And that's something that I was thinking about a few weeks ago, actually, um, as I was sitting in church and kind of trying to enjoy it and get something out of it and looking around and seeing all the people on their phones and having my own little itch to pull my phone out even though I didn't need it for any reason and being struck by this feeling of this easing God out and how difficult it can be just to cope in this world where the information revolution is what I've heard it being called and you always have access to so many things and you feel like you have to keep up with everything and whether that's the news or whether that's your friends on Facebook, and maybe this is me as a millennial talking, but it can be really difficult to block all that out and to let God in instead. And he talked about how having this easing God out and all of this overwhelming technology and information can lead to these kids that he works with lacking meaning and purpose and feeling that. And I I think that is absolutely true When you're faced with how big the world is, it's kind of difficult to reconcile your own importance with that.
3: I'd like to add on to that a little bit. As he talked about easing God out, that struck me too, very insightful, because he talked about as that easing God out happens, there's a vacuum. Mm -hmm. We are spiritual individuals, and as such, we are built to have a connection with God, as he described. And when that vacuum is created, we try and fill it with something. And the things to try and fill it with are not valuable. Nothing can compare to filling it with God and God-like things. Therefore, we just degenerate from there. Thus, technology is a way to do some wonderful things. But if it leads us, like many other things can, to taking God out of our lives, we're going to fill it with things that aren't as valuable and lose meaning and purpose.
4: You know, I was struck by his talking about not being an expert, not being a, a clinical psychologist or having any of that kind of training, not having that to bring to the kids that he works with with this problem of easing God out. But that's that's exactly what he needs to bring to it. And that sense comes from my own experience of two and a half years of suicidal depression many years ago in my life, not finding anything that helped from professionals, ultimately understanding that what I had to do was turn to God. And He would teach me, and did teach me, how I needed to see the world differently so that it didn't all dead end in depression. So it was powerful for me to hear him saying, you know, well, I'm not this trained professional, and I wanted to say, you don't need to be. (laughs) I think one of the things that Ease has got out in our world is this notion that there are experts, you know, that we know stuff, that we have control somehow. And since that time, I've had training in psychology. That's my professional training. And I remain convinced that the real answers are not in psychology's view of human beings, but in a connection with God.
2: I'm going to let my millennial show again. As you were speaking and talking about experts, it's reminded me of certain times in my life, and sorry to be very vague because this is just a couple of times that I can't put a necessarily pinpoint on, but where I felt kind of lost and alone and distant from God and being inundated with all this technology and information and experts and everything, like there's a fix for everything. I've felt myself almost like googling how how do i get closer to god like where's god you know <laughs> <laughs> and you know I mean I'm sure the internet has some great ideas. I mean he just told us about this ask thing, which I'm really interested to look up now. But at the same time, I'm you know, I'm with you on that that all of these experts have a lot of important things to say and they it's important. But at the same time we do need to have our own personal connection with God and that comes not necessarily through Googling God.
3: God doesn't have a Twitter account, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> maybe <yeah. That's laughs> not, that's, that's, that's <laughs> Let's hope.
5: I was thinking about going back to this idea of easing God out where Rabbi Benny says that using that example of the compass and needing to find a center mm-hmm. so that we can draw those perfect circles in our life. I think one of the, the problems that comes in this time of great advancement in our lives and this easing God out is a tendency when we, we kind of push God out is we're no longer unified. We're no y- longer unified in a purpose Maybe that meaning and that purpose kind of goes hand in hand with that. And as we do that, we begin to separate into our ideas are better, our thoughts are better. He used the idea here that fragmentism is offensive. And yet I see it so much around us. Whether you're listening to the radio or the television or looking at your phone, whatever you're doing, somebody is better, somebody else's idea is worse than yours. We have a really hard time coming together. I think it produces more anxiety in our world because others can't meet our expectations, but we look at the outside world and we can't meet their expectations. And there's just this great feeling of anxiety in everything that we do, where I think that putting God as that center point in there, we begin to see more unity. We begin to see more Areas in life where we are alike and where we can come together and where we can accept one another on a level playing field.
3: That's very interesting. Because as you say that, it makes me think, uh, makes me realize that as we ease God out, we ease others out exactly. too. Mm-hmm. Yes. Exactly. And thus it causes violence and conflict and uh, disagreement. Hmm. Nothing like what we see today in the world, is it? <laughs> It's but, as that we we, see. but his inclusivity of everyone has a purpose, everyone has meaning, regardless of what their religion, their ethnicity, whatever it might be, everyone has purpose, and God is the center. Right. That focal point, if you will, of doing that. When we push him out, we push others out too.
4: And when we take him in, we let others in. Right. I mm-hmm. I have the experience in my work of hosting and having to get to know in kind of quick situations mm-hmm. people from a lot of different faiths. Faith with whom I know I would have deep theological differences that we could probably argue about. But if we just start talking about our own personal experience with God, I have never once gotten to a place with any of those people, Muslim, Jewish, Baptist, you name it, Catholic. I've never gotten to a place where we stop and say, oh, that's not like how it is for me. When we talk just about our day-to-day experience of connection with God, we're putting words in each other's mouths and and finishing each other's sentences, and there's just this flow and sense of connection with Him and then, of course, with each other. And so often they leave, and I feel like we're lifetime friends now, because God was at the heart of our conversation with each other in the first place.
5: Well, and I think when you can find that center, like Rabbi Benny was talking about, find that center and connect yourself to that center— That godly center that you can look around at others and accept who they are, and not push them out in that circle. You know, their being different doesn't injure you in any way. Yeah, and you can accept them, and you can love them, and you can for their differences.
1: This is a conversation in good faith. Listeners sharing their thoughts on the first half of today's show with Rabbi Benny Zippel. Find the full episode online at BYUradio.org slash in good faith. Now back to the conversation.
4: And you know, I think the keeping the center kind of depends on those little things he talked about later. The things he was trying to teach to the youth, the troubled youth who were feeling alienated. Let's make this snack into an opportunity to connect with God. The rabbi's account of teaching youth those little things that remind you that you're living your life with God are so critically important. I can't imagine what my life would be like without prayer, without scriptures, without those things to keep me centered. You don't stay centered. That's the bottom line. You stop doing them, you, you don't stay centered.
2: For a while, I had on my phone this alarm that would go off um, every day at like the same time. It was just like One time during the day that I knew if the alarm went off, it wouldn't bother anybody. All it said was, remember Christ today. For me, Christ is a very important part of my religion and my relationship with God. So when he was talking about turning all these small moments, whether it was like snacks or whatever it was we were doing, into godly encounters, that was immediately where my mind went, was that I would have this alarm that no matter what I was doing, I would stop. And I mean, I'd I'd turn it off pretty quickly, but I'd think, what I'm doing right now how can I make that about Christ or what does that have to do with Christ? And most of the time it ended up being something about gratitude. It's like, oh, because of Christ, I have this opportunity in my life. And so um, I really like that idea of turning all these small moments into godly encounters and expanding upon what a lot of times in organized religion we're taught about going to church or saying our prayers and doing scriptures, which I think is very, very important. But beyond that, expanding from those just like set aside moments throughout the day and turning everyday small moments into godly encounters, and in that way, growing closer to God, learning about our own inherent meaning and purpose, as he said, and learning about others' inherent meaning and purpose as well.
4: It's sort of like there are two sides of it, that you can deliberately do things, but he'll bring you things to do too that connect with him if if you're open to that all the time. It reminds me of an experience. I had a dear friend who was dying And this is a very small thing, but as I stood in front of the closet, I knew she would probably die that day. And an impression, a thought came to me about what to put on so that I'd be prepared to do what I needed to do that day. What I couldn't have known about that day when my friend was dying was that I was going to be running back and forth between her house and my house over and over and over. It was June. I never wore shoes in June. (laughs) I put on flip-flops, something like that. But I had a clear, strong feeling, put on your running shoes. So I did, and I spent the day running back and forth between our two houses, and what a gift that was. It made me realize God will be part of our lives if we're willing to make him the center, be the center, which was kind of amazing. <laughs> and the possibility was probably enhanced because it was, a, for me, a very God-connected experience helping her go back to God as by dying. But th- it's like there can be a conversation. We can offer things to him, but then he'll say things back to us, too, to help us be on track.
3: And that can happen any time during the day. It doesn't need to be a specific time. I think Rabbi Zippel was just on mark on so many things here. And for me, for example, we offer prayers, and I say personal prayers. And I've, in the past, been told by some that they, and and for them it works. Well, they offer their prayer, then they stay quiet for a few minutes and listen. That's good. That's reverent. But I don't get a lot of answers then. For me, the answers come as I'm driving. The answers come as I'm sitting at the desk at work. The answers come as I'm taking a walk. The answers come any time, and being open to that is, for me, a closer connection to God and with God than it is to be quiet for a few minutes after prayer. Frankly, sometimes my weakness, I'm so tired after prayer I wanna get to bed and (laughs) get some sleep and maybe the answer will come later. But I get as many or more answers actually as I'm going throughout the day, like your impression to put on a certain thing and that connection a small thing. And Rabbi Zippel really hit this I think very well in terms of having that center and then tying everything we do as Alyssa said uh, earlier, the, the snack thing and referring to that, everything we do is a connection during the day with God. Great, great point.
2: I just wanted to add to that because you were talking about how you don't necessarily get the answers right after your prayers, and I was thinking, okay, so when is it that I get answers to prayers? Like When, is, when do I get those responses? Because I'm like you where I could sit quiet for like 10 minutes and just be like, nothing there. And it, it occurred to me that I get those answers I get them all kinds of places in all kinds of ways, but one of the consistent ways is when I'm not thinking about myself and when I'm thinking about others. Mm. And so it made me think about the end of his interview when he was talking about the Holocaust and how we can learn – what we can learn about that. He said there is one giver and taker of life, and that is God. Um, And so we have no business looking down on or harming anybody else. When I'm feeling the closest to God, what I would say when I'm feeling the Spirit is usually when I'm thinking about things like that, like, oh, how can I love others? How can I, how can I be inclusive and thinking about how everybody's a child of God? And I think that's a really important part of, his, of this interview and what his point was that we need to be loving to everybody else because we all are children of God.
4: I agree, Alyssa. I think that's a natural outgrowth of having God at the center of your life. If that's really happening, one of the ways you know that's happening Mm -hmm. is that you feel connected to other people in ways that are loving, and you want to do the kind of thing that Rabbi Zippel is doing, reaching out to youth. That seems like the most natural impulse in the world for a person who's trying to have their life centered in God, to bless other people's lives.
5: Oh, I totally agree with that. One of the things that Rabbi Benny talked about, he talked about that as he's working with these youth. One of the really important things is for them to understand that there's a God that created them and blessed them with inherent meaning and purpose. Earlier on, he talked about this idea of the lamp ladders and the light that burns in the darkness, that somebody can kind of see that. I heard a speaker recently that talked about, in quoting someone else, saying that the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I've really thought a lot about that. This relationship that we have with God and our connection with God and the things that He has done for us and and keeping that connection with Him is that main thing and what is it that we do. And one of the things that I was reading in connection with that was in the New Testament where it talked about where our treasure is, there is our heart also. The very next verse with that said that we should keep our loins girded and our light burning. And I think that that light within each one of us is a way that shows that we are connected with God and gives someone else a little bit of light. A little bit of light produces a lot of warmth and a lot of warm feelings towards others. But it's also that connection that we have with God that we're sharing with others so that they can perhaps find a connection to God. Because I think that if we can keep that main thing, the main thing, then everything else has a different purpose. And that purpose is love. And that purpose is where that love comes from, where that light comes from.
3: Though we were just listening, we didn't get to see him other than a picture, you could feel that light in him, Mm -hmm. in Rabbi Zippel, couldn't you? Absolutely. Feel that light, and I was intrigued by how he started the conversation where he talked about coming to an outpost in Utah. (laughs) (laughs) Many of us wouldn't think Utah is an outpost, but I suppose every place where we find our calling is an outpost. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I wrote down as a quote that I'm going to keep, that his calling, that he got, as he referred to it as, was transforming the world into a godly abode. I love
5: that. Yeah, I wrote that down too. Isn't that an
3: amazing calling, and one that any one of us can hold individually in our own work settings, family settings, um, whatever it be, whatever it might be. From the moment he said that, I thought this, this guy's got light.
5: One of the other things that he talked about was the importance of preserving memories, as he was talking about the Holocaust and talking about that generation dying off. I know with us, because we've kind of started a business that works along that idea, but in preparation for that, working to preserve some of our own memories and the connection that it has given to us with our parents, with our siblings, with our family that we have across many waters (laughs) has been amazing. As we see some of those generations dying off in even in our own family, and as we have tried to connect with that, so that we don't lose that connection. What a powerful impact that has been, not on us who knew them personally growing up, but on our children and now their children, so that they can remember. Because perhaps if we remember, we won't ever forget. And I think that that's when, when he was talking about the Holocaust, it's really important that they remember, that we remember, in hopes that that will never happen again.
2: Memories are a powerful thing. Yeah, as part of the study I do at BYU, I mentioned um, I'm a sociology major. And this past year, this past semester, I was part of a civil rights seminar. Um, so we studied the civil rights movement in like the 50s and the 60s. And I, similar, have been struck over and over and over again how important it is to know our history. Because what's happening now, our lives now, our, our present, is not independent of our past. And a lot of times I think we treat it that way. If we want to move forward into the future and be better than where we have been, we need to know where we have been. I just think that's a very important part of making the world a godly abode, is to understand our past. I
5: love the, the comment as he was talking, I will probably slaughter this word, the the, the Hebrew prayer book, and as he originally of course, it's in Hebrew, but then he would translate it into Italian, and now he's been over here for so long that he translates it into he, into English. And coming from a background where I speak several different languages, um, what I have found through that experience is that each language has a better way of saying certain words. Mm-hmm. and. I'm sure that some of the words he just keeps in that Hebrew because it has a, a stronger meaning for him. Some words in Italian will have a stronger meaning. Some words in English will have a stronger meaning. And that I think that that is true with the different people that we meet in our lives, whether they speak a language or not. Every person has a little bit of a different personal language in our lives and bring a different meaning into our lives that do not take away from who we are but only enhance it and we find a better way to express things through that.
1: That's our time for today. Thanks to our panelists, Emily, Val, Desiree, and Alyssa, and especially to Rabbi Benny Zippel for generously sharing his stories and his faith. You can learn about and support Chabad Lubavitch and Project Heart by visiting JewishUtah.com. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. Where do you listen to In Good Faith? We'd love to know. Email us at ingoodfaith@byu.edu. at byu.edu. Find us online at byuradio.org ingoodfaith. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. Our associate producer is Rachel Sherman. I'm your host and producer, Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join us again soon, right here, in good faith.